Innovations in minimally invasive surgery and therapeutic endoscopy are contributing to a promising field called Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery, or NOTES. How can some of the first case studies on NOTES procedures elucidate important facets of this novel technique? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and our guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Soper, Professor and Chair of Surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Soper is a leading contributor to emerging topics in minimally invasive surgery. Welcome, Dr. Soper. Well, thanks very much for having me, Mark. Today we are discussing case studies on procedures of notes, natural orifice, transluminal endoscopic surgery. Dr. Soper, where did this experimentation and surgery begin, and how are you involved at this at Northwestern? The early experiments were done by gastroenterologists, actually, uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital. Tony Kalu was the name of the leader of that group, who first realized that if you put a hole in the stomach, you could go out in the abdominal cavity and try to do things, and were successful in animal models. Over the last three or four years, there's been a tremendous interest in the possibilities of this new field or this new technology, although we don't know where it will go. And we have been involved now in the research laboratory for the last several years and in the last six months began performing early clinical application in humans. And what procedures have you actually done in humans? The only procedure we've done thus far has been uh, transgastric cholecystectomies. And are those exclusively a notes procedure, or is that what you call a hybrid procedure? We're performing a hybrid procedure, which was actually mandated by our IRB to be as safe as we possibly could be in the early application of these investigational procedures. That is, we can put a very small laparoscope in and watch and make sure that things are safe, particularly at the beginning of the procedure when the scope comes out of the stomach and at the end of the procedure when the hole in the stomach wall is closed. So in other words, the laparoscope, meaning your camera, is going through the stomach, but the dissection and the retraction are through abdominal wall incisions. No, exactly the opposite. The laparoscope with the incision in the abdominal wall is simply there to monitor and to make sure things are safe. The operations are being done using the endoscope that is passed down the mouth and out the stomach. And our hope is that ultimately we'll be able to eliminate the laparoscope and the external incision. Has that been difficult to do? Well, at this point, it is quite difficult because of the early stage in evolution of the notes, scopes, and platforms for surgery. How many animal procedures have you done before you felt comfortable to do this on humans? Somewhere between 50 and 100 animals and probably 10 or 15 cadaver studies. We felt it critical that we truly understood some of the nuances of the motion of these scopes and what could be done and have a feeling in our mind that we really could accomplish these things safely. And how long do one of these procedures take? Well, it depends. For the endoscopic or notes cholecystectomy, the average time is still up around three hours. And is that 
clearly a disadvantage as most gallbladders we can remove laparoscopically in well under an hour. It is currently a disadvantage, but I would remind you that in most people's experience, their first one or two or five laparoscopic cholecystectomies probably took between two and four hours. And we've only done three of the notes cholecystectomies thus far. So we're clearly early on the learning curve. And I believe the learning curve will actually be longer for the notes cases than for the laparoscopy because of the rudimentary instruments we are currently using. What other institutions are currently doing notes research and clinical studies? In the United States, there's only one other institution that I know of performing transgastric cholecystectomies, and that's at Legacy Hospital in Portland. There are at least two centers in the United States doing transvaginal cholecystectomies, those being at Columbia in New York City and at the University of California, San Diego. And what about abroad? Abroad, there are a number of places in Brazil, Argentina, France, and I believe now in the Far East, there have been a couple of uh, procedures done as well. And where do you think that this will continue to be developed? Well, In the United States, there's much more oversight in terms of the rigor with which IRBs look at what is being done in humans. In South America, I I believe that there is slightly less oversight. There is a surgeon in Central South America who's actually done a number of these operations and has had complications that we have not seen in other centers previously, such as leakage from the hole in the stomach. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Nathaniel Soper, professor and chair of surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. We are discussing case studies on procedures of notes, natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery. Dr. Soper, you mentioned that gastroenterologists were very interested in this. Do you think that gastroenterologists perhaps are looking to do these procedures instead of surgeons? Well, I think there are probably a handful of very innovative and experienced interventional endoscopists who believe that they could probably do this kind of surgery. I think overall, however, this will not be something done by gastroenterologists, but rather done by surgeons, because it requires the understanding of surgical techniques and procedures that the gastroenterologists simply are not trained in. Well, if I may ask you a question, as we know, percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy was developed by surgeons, and gradually over time, that procedure has been taken over by the gastroenterologist. Why would that happen? Well, I think that, first of all, that's a relatively simple technique, and in fact, many surgeons still do perform those. In fact, our surgical intensivists do that in the ICUs all all of the time. But the reality is for things such as that, most of the time surgeons have been more concerned with being in the operating room than being in the endoscopy suite. And I think that's a problem, frankly, because now very few surgeons have advanced endoscopic experience and technical abilities. Is there any change in the training of young surgeons that might alter that? The Residency Review Committee for General Surgery recently changed the number of endoscopic procedures that will be required for surgical residents upon completion of their training. 
going from a total of 30 endoscopic procedures of any sort to now requiring 50 colonoscopies and 35 upper endoscopies by all residents. Is that stepping on the toes of the fellows doing gastroenterology? Potentially, and there have been turf battles about this issue around the country, but the reality is that with a mandate such as that, there will need to be cooperation because most gastroenterology departments will not want their surgical residencies to be disaccredited. Are there comparative trials or with laparoscopic surgery comparing this to notes? Not at the current time, and I don't believe it would be a fair comparison because of the early phase we are in in the learning curve. Clearly, there would need to be prospective randomized trials, but it would only be a value after experience has been achieved with the notes procedures. Well, is there a national database? There is a national database that has been developed such that all patients being operated on can be entered to be able to see if there are some infrequent complications that occur at each individual place that ultimately add up to significant concerns. And what has that shown so far? So far in in the United States, where most of the patients have been entered, there have been no major complications, but very small patient numbers treated thus far. When we talk about small patient numbers, what are we really talking about? We have performed three of these. At Legacy Hospital, there have been four I believe at UCSD for the transvaginal, they've done four or five, and at Columbia, I believe they've done three or four. So you can see the numbers of cases are extremely small and way too small to start drawing conclusions. Do you think that, assuming that we don't run into trouble, there will be a meteoric rise in the number of these procedures like there were after Eddie Reddick popularized laparoscopic cholecystectomy in this country? I don't believe it's going to take off at that same speed. We still have a long way to go before we have the the instruments that we will really require to become facile at this kind of surgery and to to speed it up to the point that we can start competing with laparoscopic techniques. And it's going to require people doing these kind of early investigational efforts to really work out some of the bugs. Well, do you think we moved too fast with the laparoscopic cholecystectomy in retrospect? In retrospect, I think we did. It was kind of Katie bar the door back then because the practicing general surgeons, in many cases, gallbladders made up 30 to 50 percent of their practice volume. And so they saw it as a real threat to their livelihood if they didn't learn how to do the laparoscopic cholecystectomies rapidly. And what happened then was a profusion of teaching venues of very highly variable quality, with some courses having the surgeons taking out one gallbladder from a rabbit in a hotel room before going back to do these on humans. And clearly there were a lot of early complications that could have been avoided had there been more training opportunities of quality. Do you think that cost in terms of this procedure will be an issue? Well, currently, certainly it is. Where it will end up, nobody really knows. It all depends on the R&D that's coming along and the cost of the instrumentation that will ultimately be developed. It will also depend, too, on if we can change the site of service, say from an operating room to an outpatient GI lab, potentially then the cost could be decreased. Do you expect at Northwestern to be continuing to increase the number of patients that you use the notes technique on? I certainly would assume so. Again, we are being very highly selective in the patients that we will select to do these operations on. We're 
choosing the easiest patients, if you will, for now, until we really feel comfortable that, A, we have the equipment that we need to do the right thing, and, B, that we understand all of the techniques and the safety features of the operation. Well, Dr. Soper, from your perspective, how does it feel to be on the cutting edge of this research? Well, it's it's interesting and it's somewhat exhilarating. I was one of the first surgeons in the Midwest to perform laparoscopic surgery back in the day, and it's fun to now be involved in another potentially potentially revolutionary development in the field of surgery. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Nathaniel Soper. We have been discussing case studies on procedures of notes, natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.